That's Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. In this edition of Fangraphs Audio, I talk with our full-time employee, Dave Cameron. Due to the fortune of good timing, Dave Cameron's able to give us some insta-analysis of the Rookie of the Year voting. We get to see Cameron not only decipher the writer's methodology for voting, but also Cameron's own picks for Rookie of the Year, and which players among 2011's debutantes might actually end up having the best major league careers. And there we also pick up on some of the news of the weekend, including Jonathan Papelbon's contract with the Philadelphia Phillies uh, and Matt Kemp's eight-year, $160 million extension with the Los Angeles Dodgers. If you're the sort of person who likes to hear two people talk about a movie that neither of them have seen, this edition of Fangraphs Audio also offers you that. And uh, without any more hesitation, here's my conversation with Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm well. We're reaching you by cell phone in your, I guess, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, is that yeah. right? As per usual. Uh, yes, I'm usually here, yeah. Right. Calling you on Monday afternoon, minutes, well, I guess everything is minutes after something else, but in this case, not that very many minutes after the Rookie of the Years have been named. We had sort of timed this conversation so that it would come not too long after that. So we should say, we can announce right now that Jeremy Hellickson is the American League Rookie of the Year. Uh, reliever Craig Kimbrell of the Atlanta Braves is the National League Rookie of the Year. Right. You're the one. You're the one who wanted to talk about it. What's interesting? Well, I don't know that I would say that they were interesting. I just thought that we should maybe record the podcast after they had been announced rather than before, so that we could, you know, react rather than speculate. That doesn't necessarily mean I want to talk about him too much, though. I mean, Hellickson won because he had a low ERA. Kimbrell won because he got all the saves and was pretty good. I think these are kind of expected results. They don't say a whole lot about, um, you know, the necessarily the, the education of the BBWAA since they went back to the, the ERA and saved well instead of looking at, you know, maybe guys who had better years with uh, less traditional metrics. But, you know, it's the rookie of the year. Does anyone really care? Well, um, that's a good question. If you had a vote, who would you have gone with? Uh, so in the American League, I probably would have voted for Dustin Ackley, and I know people say, oh, he's a Seattle guy, he'd vote for Ackley, but I mean, I think, uh, I'm more of the opinion that quality performance in a short period of time is more valuable than stretched out over a full season. I think if you look at what Ackley did in essentially half a season's worth of time, he was one of the better second basemen in baseball for that half a season, and I think that's more valuable than being a adequate starting pitcher for a longer period of time, like Nova or Hellickson or even Michael Pineda was. Um, I think you could also make an interesting case for Desmond Jennings and Brett Laurie along the same case, uh, along the same lines. Of, you know, they were excellent in shorter periods of time, and to me, I, I value that more than mediocrity over longer periods of time. Yeah, the Brett Laurie case is interesting because he was, uh, by Fangraph's war, he was third among all position players who were rookies, and the only two people ahead of him were both National Leaguers, and they were actually... Uh, curiously, both Washington Nationals. We can maybe address that momentarily. But Laurie was crazy good uh, for a short amount of time. So really, even if you have, as the Blue Jays did, uh, some combination of – I don't even remember who they had playing there. It was sad. I know John McDonald definitely got some starts. 
you know, they, they started the season with Edwin Encarnacion at third, and then they eventually realized that he should just never wear a glove. Right. And Jose Bautista did get uh, some repetitions there. Some and he's probably right. decent. I mean, at this point, it seems as though that sort of player isn't going to receive many votes in, in this in the Rookie of the Year uh, voting. Right. I mean, the voters still clearly look at counting stats. They don't really look at rate stats all that much. Uh, I mean, maybe they're moving a little bit in that direction with ERA instead of wins, which we see with Ellickson getting more votes than winning the award and Nova hardly getting any votes. Uh, but I think, by and large, they're still looking at, uh, you know, total wins, total RBIs, total home runs. I mean, there's a reason Trumbo and Osmer finished third and fourth, even though they were significantly inferior to guys like Ackley or Lori or Desmond Jennings, uh, is because they had home runs and RBIs and they played for most of the season. Trumbo played for the whole season, essentially. So I think that, you know, the voters aren't looking at rate stats, they're looking at counting stats. And so uh, they're always going to go for guys who played five or 600 play appearances or, you know, close to 200 innings over a guy who was significantly better in a shorter period of time. Let's pretend uh, momentarily that the award isn't necessarily given to the best performance by a rookie, but to the player that we think to, to the player who both uh, qualifies as a rookie in that, I guess, he for the first time in his career, he had over 130 at-bats or 50 innings pitched. Um, so that is one criteria. And the other criteria would be the player that we think will become the best major leaguer. At that point, the actual performances from 2011 matter less. Do you think that, again, do you think that some combination of Ackley, Brett Laurie, and Desmond Jennings – are probably among sort of, uh, well, at least in the AL or maybe maybe considering both leagues, are the best players we saw make their debuts or, you know, um, log their rookie seasons this year? Yeah, I think you could probably throw Michael Pineda into that category as well and maybe Freddie Freeman if you if you really like him or Hosmer. Uh, I think that those are the guys you would look at and say, of the rookies this year, who would you really want on your franchise going forward? Uh, I think if you pulled scouts or if you looked at kind of the projections, you'd end up with an Ackley, Laurie, Jennings, Hosmer, Pineda uh, grouping kind of towards the top. And then, you know, guys like Hellickson would receive some support, but would probably almost certainly, uh, probably almost certainly, that's a pretty good uh, line right there. They would uh, likely get a little less support, and probably for a good reason. I mean, I think Hellickson's a decent enough pitcher, but uh, I, I would be hard-pressed to find anyone who would take Jeremy Hellickson over Brett Laurie or even Devin Jennings. Hellickson's curious because... Um, he had excellent minor league numbers, and he does seem to have excellent stuff both in terms of control or or has been rated as having excellent stuff both in terms of control and in particular his changeup. So it seems as though he still has, or I would I would think he would still have um, upside in his future. However, that's not necessarily what, at least from the peripheral numbers, 2011 showed. What do you see Hellickson's future as being? I mean, I think Ellickson's a lot better than his 2011 XFIP, which says he was, you know, one of the worst pitchers in the American League, honestly. Uh, I think if you look at, if you put ERA aside and the, you know, really low batting average on balls in play, which led to a high strand rate, put that aside. Ellickson clearly didn't have a great 2011. Uh, I think he's better than he was in the major leagues. I think in the minors, he showed significant command, uh, the ability to pound the strike zone. I think he's going to turn into you know, the classic Minnesota Twins pitcher, the guy who hardly ever walks anyone, has a good change-up, mixes his pitches well, changes speeds, keeps hitters off balance. I don't think he's going to be a high strikeout guy. I think his minor league strikeout rates were probably indicative of things that work in the minors that don't necessarily work in the majors. So I think he'll settle in as like a 
you know, maybe a, a slightly better version of Carl Pavano. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that pitcher, but I think his star level ability is is quite a bit lower than guys like Laurie or Ackley. Hey, here's the curious thing. One of the players that's on our uh, rookie leaderboards is Chris Sale, uh, who was mostly a, a late-inning reliever for the Chicago White Sox this year. But he was, a, I believe, a starter in college, and if I'm not mistaken, um, is scheduled to enter the White Sox rotation in 2012. I'm curious to see where you believe that uh, he fits in on this sort of this spectrum of um, rookie debuts we saw this year, including, for example, Michael Pineda, uh, Brandon Beachy, players like Nova, Worley, and, and of course, Hellickson. Yeah, I mean, Sale, I think, is an interesting guy in that uh, you're going to find pretty wide-ranging opinions on whether he can start or whether he's a bullpen guy, and most of it has to do with arm slot. I mean, he, Sale's a guy who throws uh, across his body from a pretty low angle, which allows him to just be absolutely death to left-handers, but he doesn't necessarily have the same weapons against right-handers. So a lot of scouts have projected him for, as a bullpen guy for a long time, and it's one of the reasons the White Sox pushed him into a bullpen role, even if they spent a first-round pick on him, is because he could get to the majors very quickly and be a dominant left-on-left guy. The question is, long-term, can he get right-handers out well enough to stick in the rotation? Because, you know, left-handed starters see, you know, 80 to 85% right-handers over the course of the year. It's pretty easy for opposing managers to stack a team with right-handed bats against the left-handed starting pitcher. So he's going to have to be able to get right-handed bats out. And for me, that's still a bit of an open question is from that arm slot, uh, can he spin a changeup well enough to get some fade to get right-handed or left balance, or can he come up with something, whether it's a cutter or some kind of uh, variation of a fastball, to keep right-handed hitters not only off balance, but to be able to get, get them out on a regular basis. Continuing on the steam of rookie pitchers, I believe at one point you advocated at USS Mariner uh, for a trade involving Michael Pineda. Uh, yes. I forget precisely where you were sending him. It might have been to the Cincinnati Reds for Joey Votto. Correct. Is yeah, yeah, I've, I've, been, I've advocated sending him to Cincinnati a, a couple of times. I, is that because you think that Pineda's 2011 is close to his ceiling, or do you are you under the impression that the Mariners are sort of uh, flush with pitching talent and, and uh, have a chance to get rid of some of it? I, I wouldn't say that, that, that it's a little bit of both, but neither of both as well. But I think Pineda has some long-term risk in that he's a young pitcher who's had uh, some arm problems in the minor leagues. Um, so I think that with any young pitcher, there's significant risk attached. And I think in the precise situation that the Mariners are in, in trying to rebuild their franchise, uh, rebuilding around young pitching is a very scary thing to do. That can blow up very quickly. Uh, you can ask the Mets when they had Pulsifer and Wilson and Isinghausen and that whole, like, we're going to have the greatest starting rotation ever. Uh, and then it all, you know, it all went to pop pretty quickly. I think the Mariners' current depth of talent with Felix Hernandez, Michael Pineda, Danny Holson, James Paxton, Taiwan Walker, they have a lot of really good young arms. But if I'm building a franchise, I don't necessarily want to try and rebuild around good young arms because if that blows up, I don't have a whole lot left. So uh, the advocation was essentially that the Mariners should move one of those young arms, Pineda probably being the most marketable of the bunch, not named Felix Hernandez, in order to get an offensive player that they really need uh, and give them a little bit less risk in long-term building. So if they could exchange some risk for some certainty by moving a pitcher for a hitter, I think that's a good deal for the Mariners. I do think that Pineda's a, a pretty good pitcher. I don't think that the Mariners should trade him because I think he's terrible and is going to regress immediately. But I do think that, you know, there aren't too many 22-year-olds who throw 95 miles an hour with command, and Pineda would be able to return a, a pretty decent price if the Mariners put him up for sale on the market. And uh, considering their offensive needs, 
it might not be the worst idea in the world to sell high on him before his arm gets hurt or, you know, left-handed batters figure out that his changeup's terrible. Uh, or, you know, he just succumbs to young pitcher regression. It's a lot of information already. This has <laughs> well, been, uh, you know, that's why I talk fast, is to try and, you know, compact it all into a very short period of time. Right, but I would even say for the podcast, uh, we're not, uh, we don't do a lot of work with information around here. I'm sorry. Well, I think you could uh, invite, you know, uh, maybe Eno or Swick back on and get information-free podcasts. Yeah, yeah, or certainly Dane Perry. I don't know if you've heard any of his interviews, but it's mostly about... I, I have not, because uh, I think they're all R-rated. And, and, uh, I don't actually, uh, technically they're not. Uh, we There is some beeping out that has to occur, uh, <laughs> but because we're not an explicit podcast. Uh, we're explicit right. in... Uh, uh, in the in the thoughts that we're thinking, we just they don't they don't uh, materialize on air. Right. Uh, shall we change subjects? Mm, sure. I believe that uh, this morning Matt Kemp signed uh, some sort of humongous deal with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yep. That's maybe what is it? Uh, Hundred sixty million over eight years. Okay, so average annual value of twenty million. Uh, at first blush, that seems like a decent deal for the Dodgers. Are they buying out one arbitration year? Yeah, there was well, essentially they're getting. I mean, they were not really buying out the arbitration year. They were going to pay Camp fifteen or sixteen million dollars in two thousand eleven, whether they signed him to an extension or not. So you can essentially just throw out what or two thousand twelve. You can throw out that part of the salary and say they're buying seven free agent years for about one hundred and forty five million dollars, or almost exactly what Carl Crawford got as a free agent last winter. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of age, uh, Kemp and Crawford are going to get similar positions when they hit free agency. It makes sense that they would get similar contracts as that's kind of been the bar for premium outfielders, uh, heading into their prime, uh, or at least in their mid twenties getting long-term deals. Uh, Kemp maybe comes with some question marks about his, uh, inconsistency. He was not very good in 2010, but of course his skill set's a little bit more valued in the market and that he's more about power and RBIs than defense and stolen bases. So um, I I don't know that I would say this is a good deal for the Dodgers, but I think there was no way they were going to get him for less than this. And so their options were either give him this contract or trade him. Uh, Matt Kemp's defense in center field perhaps isn't fantastic. Um, Right. I know that so far right now the Dodgers' solution in left field is Juan Rivera, I believe. Well, I think Rivera is probably going to play a little bit more first base. I I think they're going to – uh, use Rivera as like a platoon guy if they bring James Loney back. I, don't, I am guessing they're going to go get a new left fielder. Oh, okay. Uh, and is Jerry Sands um, an option to fill that role or no? Um, probably not if they want to win. If the new owner decides that he's going to go really cheap and not invest in the team, then I can see fans getting more playing time. But I think any decent evaluation of that left field situation would say that he's not good enough to handle the position on a full-time basis. Okay, and in right field, is uh, I've heard that Andre Ethier might be a non-tender candidate. Is that a fact? No, Ethier is definitely going to come back. He's, uh, I would say at this point, one of the more overrated players in baseball, but there's still a perception of him as something of a star. Uh, he had a long hitting streak. He's hit for a high average. Um, I think people look at his down production last year as uh, resulting due to an injury, and people might not realize that he's not a very good defensive outfielder, especially considering he just won a gold glove, which was kind of a joke. Um, I think Ethier, they, they would probably be more inclined to give him an extension than they would be the non-tender room. Well, all right, so how? So I guess the thing I was getting at sort of uh, obli- uh, um, poorly is my point. How how much longer is Matt Kemp going to play center field? Well, I think that the Dodgers 
they signed him to this deal, viewing him as a center fielder. Uh, I would not anticipate that they're planning on moving him to a corner outfield spot. I think it's possible that in a couple of years he could get large enough to the point where his range would have diminished to the point where even they would agree that he needs to move to a corner. Uh, but I don't think that's in the plan. I don't think they signed him thinking, okay, you know, we'll get another year out of center field and we'll move him to left. And I think they, they view Kemp as a, as a center fielder and an up the middle bat. And that's why they were willing to give him eight years of 20 million a year. Hmm. Speaking of, um, contracts, it's a segue. What, John Pavelbon signed a four year deal for, uh, approximately $50 million? And $58. Right. Yeah, $50 yeah. million, 58. Yeah. Yes, right. Um, that's a bit of flair there. Um, that seems like a lot of money. I I, I believe uh, the most recent episode of the podcast, or maybe Wednesday, we discussed Ryan Madsen at 4 and 44 as, as being um, pretty expensive for a reliever, although when you discuss marginal, uh, marginal victories and paying for them, obviously – uh, a talented Philadelphia Phillies team has more at stake there than a team like the Houston Astros or Minnesota Twins at this point. But right. still, that's a lot to spend on a relief pitcher who, you know, in who's who might end up doing the same exact thing that Antonio Bastardo could do. Although maybe you disagree with that. Uh, I mean, I like Bastardo, but I think uh, he's probably better suited to roles where you can use him situationally and the matchup guy uh, rather than just bringing him in to face whoever's coming up in the ninth inning. But I do think that, you know, I think reliever valuations are a little bit out of control of baseball. I mean, obviously wins of replacement and a lot of the metrics that we lean on tell you that a pitcher who pitches 50 or 60 innings, no matter how good he is, just isn't worth premium money. Uh, and I do think... Um, the Phillies are in a position where they can afford to maybe overspend a little bit, but uh, they're only in that position if the Pavelbon contract isn't going to prevent them from retaining players they need in other positions. So I would say that, for me, the Pavelbon contract is inexcusable unless they also re-sign Jimmy Rollins and re-sign Cole Hamels to a long-term extension. If either of those players leave, whether it's Rollins through free agency or they trade Hamels this winter because they don't want to give him $100-plus plus million or they have to watch Hamels leave next year because they just can't have too many expensive players. The idea that they would choose Papelbon over either of those two is, uh, I would I would say, almost a laughably poor decision in the fact that uh, Papelbon's just not good enough to let those guys walk away. And the team, I would say, is demonstrably worse with Papelbon as their closer without Rollins or either Hamels. But if they're able to keep all of those guys and just say, screw the future, we're going for it, then I can kind of understand the deal in that they've already mortgaged their future. But if they're going to let Rollins or Hamels walk because of Papelbon's deal, then it's crazy. So Hamels has one more year before he reaches free agency? Yeah, Hamels will be a free agent, uh, free agent next winter. And I think based on what we've seen, guys like Verlander and Weaver and Felix get you know, two years from free agency, 100-plus million is a, uh, just a certain lock with Hamels. It'll probably be more like 6-1-10 or something in that range. Um, so, you know, unless the Phillies are really willing to pony up for another hundred-plus million-dollar contract uh, this winter, um, you know, there's Buster only wrote today that they might explore trading him if they're not going to do it because they wouldn't want to just let him walk away as a free agent. Okay. Now, last week on the podcast, um, you were sort of at a loss for any uh, really stinging insults. I'm wondering if you did any soul-searching over the past week. Uh, you know, I did not. Uh, I'm going to really have to up my insult game. 
Yeah. I actually had a pretty singer on you on Twitter last night that you didn't respond to about your wife's bedroom and the lights being on, but uh, I don't know if that's... That yeah, and in fact, out of uh, out of context, that sounds even worse. Yes, right. You're just talking well, about my wife and the lights in the bedroom. Like a, yeah, well, I mean, that was kind of the context of the joke anyway, but, uh, you know, we don't, we don't want to have the explicit tag slapped on there, so maybe we'll just suggest that people go through the Twitter feed from from last evening and uh, see if they found my zinger. Right, yeah, I'm sure, Dave, that uh, our listeners have no better use for their time than to dig through our respective Twitter accounts. Well, they're listening to our podcast, so I think that's a pretty safe assumption. Or are they? No, they are. Uh, If they hear these words, they are. That's actually a fact. I was trying to uh, turn this into um, the movie Inception. Did you ever see that movie? I did not see that movie, because I just don't really see movies. No, that's true. Yeah. You feel movies. I remember you always said that to me. You said, Carson, I don't watch movies. I feel them in my soul. Yeah, I think I'm, you know, I haven't even seen Moneyball. Like, I mean, the list of movies that I have seen is uh, remarkably short. No, I haven't seen it either. I haven't seen Moneyball either. I, I assume it's going to be good. It seems entertaining. Oh, really? I assume it's going to be terrible. Why? Why? I, I think it's a. It's not really a story about baseball, right? It's a story about a, a personal journey. I guess the so from what I read when the movie came out, uh, it seems to me that it's a movie that would appeal to people who don't know anything about the actual story of what's going on. So if you can go see it as like, hey, cool, Brad Pitt's in a movie, then you might actually really enjoy it because apparently it's well acted and well written. Um, but if you actually know anything about the story of the A's or read the book, uh, my guess is that it's it's going to be a little frustrating. I view it as an allegory. Just an alley. Okay. You know, it's just a story about a person's journey, and it happens to involve baseball, and is not so I, particularly representative. I Brad Pitt as like Aesop. No, a- Aesop wrote them. No, he's like okay, a well, uh, he's like a so, ti- he's so like a tiger with a thorn in his paw. <laughs> okay. Or maybe a well, lion. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Brad Pitt maybe more of a tiger. Yeah, but what was it in the actual fable? You know what? Not important. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Dave Cameron, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Everything uh, everything going well in terms of health? Anything to report? Uh, I am currently in between chemo treatments, so my last chemotherapy regimen is going to be the week after Thanksgiving. So I'm out of the hospital and uh, le- leading a semi-normal life for the next couple weeks. And yeah. My uh, my final chemotherapy treatment should be the, the first week of December. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, assuming all goes well, then that will be the last time that my body has to get completely nuked and uh, hopefully all will be well going forward after that and I continue in remission but uh, you know we'll, we'll find out as we go alright well good to hear that uh, thanks for joining us Dave alright thanks Carson yeah and I should say too that uh, the coverage of all the junk we just talked about Rookie of the Year uh, Matt Kemp uh, Jonathan Pabobon uh, there's more and probably uh, more in depth coverage of that at the site Fangraphs.com thank you for joining us I'm Carson Testuli this has been Fangraphs Audio 